From Tokyo, Japan, I'm Frank Ling, and you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. Joining us on today's show is Joel McCower, who will talk about his new book, The New Grand Strategy. So stay tuned for all of this here on the Grok Science Show. Welcome back to the program. Well, joining us today is our very special guest, Joel McCower, who will be joining us to talk about his new book, The Grand Strategy. Well, does America have a strategy? Some geostrategists would argue that America has been rudderless for the last two or three decades. Uh, military-wise, there's been one or even more strategies, but in terms of a overall vision, there seems to be none. Uh, today, Joel will be joining us to talk about the opportunities in pursuing sustainability, security, and prosperity, some of these ideas from his book. Uh, Mr. McCower, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's my pleasure. Please call me Joel. Thank you. So uh, you've written a very uh, timely book, and especially as the election looms, some of these pertinent issues should be discussed. Could you tell us a little bit of a background of how you got uh, into this book and about your two co-authors. Sure. Well, thanks for, for Frank for having me on. Uh, so this was uh, in 2009. Uh, Admiral Mike Mullen, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, the highest-ranking military officer in the U.S. government, uh, summoned Mickleby, goes by the name Puck, and a Navy captain called Wayne Porter to uh, and install them down the hall from himself in the ring of the, of the uh, Pentagon where the highest security work is done and ask them to come up with a vision for uh, America's future. Uh, not a military vision or a narrative or strategy, but just a vision because he said, and I interviewed him a few years uh, last year, and he said, I didn't know what we were fighting for. My million and a half uh, men and women in uniform were fighting for in terms of the world in which we saw America and how we saw America in the world. And so these two people, this Navy captain and this Marine colonel, uh, emerged from their office in a, a month or two later and, and came up with this narrative for America's future that put sustainability at the center. Now, not just environmental sustainability. It was really the concept that uh, of sustainability as an organism's uh, ability to remain diverse and productive over time. And that's significant because diversity goes to resilience, which goes to security, and, product, and product, productivity goes to growth, which goes to prosperity. And security and prosperity are kind of America's two enduring values. So it was. So they put out this vision. Uh, it turned out to be more about domestic policy. They looked at you know if, if sustainability is the organizing strategy for America's future, uh, what would that look like? And and we can get into what this thing called grand strategy and how this plays out in the in book we ended up writing. Uh, Puck the Marine ended up leaving the military after 28 years. He'd been a fighter pilot over Bosnia and Iraq and this you know, great military veteran. 
and uh, and hooked up with the only other person in Washington who was thinking about grand strategy, named Patrick Doherty, who was at the time at the New America Foundation. And the two of them went off and started an institute at uh, Keese Western University. I met him on stage, basically. Uh, I talked with him briefly on the phone, but we did a 30 minutes on stage in front of a thousand people. And it just blew me away and everyone else. I mean, the audience gave him a standing ovation because he had this vision for America's future. It was a business plan for America born at the Pentagon that embeds sustainability in the center as a national strategic imperative. Puck Patrick and I ended up over the next two years writing this book that's that's just out called The New Grand Strategy. Reading your synopsis, you described that the ideas in this book are bipartisan or nonpartisan in the sense that you take ideas from uh, both sides of the spectrum. How do you describe this integration? Well, first of all, I think it's important to know that the, the authors themselves sort of cross political boundaries, life experiences, even generations. I mean, Puck and I could not be more different. You know, he was this, as I said, 28-year you know war veteran, fighter pilot, uh, committed you know from rural uh, or suburban, and I guess Minnesota. And I'm you know the city boy from the West Coast who. Uh, who was a Vietnam-era conscientious objector, uh, Berkeley-educated journalist, and uh, along the way I wrote a book on Woodstock. So, you know, (laughs) and yet we ended up in exactly the same place, which is understanding the potential for business and sustainability to be a revolutionary, catalytic change agent for America's future. And so that's really the interesting part. And what, what I said in terms of this plan that we lay out, it, it really is the best of the progressive left uh, and also the conservative right, uh, which is to say it's about it's about environmental sustainability and social cohesion and food security, energy security, water security, housing security, economic development, and a lot of other things, but done by business for profit with or without Washington's help or money. So it, it really does sort of uh, you know, bring together these two worlds. And by the way, did I mention this was born at the Pentagon? In terms of, say, climate change, which I, I believe is the main theme or one of the main themes in this book, you know, what's the Pentagon's view on addressing climate change? Do they see it as a very important threat or a peripheral? First of all, this book is not the Pentagon's view on anything. And the Pentagon piece of this was really a jumping off place for the work that we have done since then. Let, let me step back for a second, because the book is called The New Grand Strategy. And so this is about something called grand strategy, which is a thing that we Americans have done at critical times in our history to take on the big challenges of the day, like fighting fascism or containing communism, or what? And then the question is, well, we really haven't had a strategy, as you said at the top of this segment, since they last lowered the the hammer and sickle on the Kremlin on Christmas Day, 1991. You know, we've sort of been working off that same old economic playbook in terms of of how we organize ourselves. And grand strategy is about aligning the economy and foreign policy and governance structures to take on those challenges. And so what is the big today's big existential threat? And we believe that it's global unsustainability. And it's just a number of things that come together, like rapid economic inclusion uh, of 3 billion additional middle-class people who, who want to you know, live uh, a better life. And, and those 3 billion people are expected to increase the per capita consumption 
uh, by 300% over the next uh, couple of decades. It's about ecological depletion, including climate change and, and the depletion of our natural capital stocks like topsoil, wetlands, fisheries, aquifers, and things like that. It's about a resilience deficit, the supply chains and infrastructures that undergird our cities and markets are fragile and prone to disruption, very brittle. And it's about what we call a contained depression, which is the fact that our economy, as well as the economy of Europe and China, Japan, and other major nations are propped up by monetary policy, like the Federal Reserve, not by citizens' aggregate, consumers' aggregate demand, which is how you make a healthy economy. So you, you take these, these things together as global on the sustainability, and, and of course, climate change is at the heart of that. And climate change you know, shows up in a lot of other ways in this book, but because so much of this book is really about how do you create a nation, but also local communities in that nation that are more resilient. And resilience really is, is about the ability uh, to withstand shocks of any kind, whether they're political shocks, economic shocks, terrorism, healthcare, or of course, climate and extreme weather. And so <clears throat> this, this book is not about climate change per se, although climate change and its solutions <clears throat> appear throughout the book, but it does bring the resilience that enables us to withstand and, and endure uh, a world with a changing climate and changing ecological systems in, in a much easier and better way that allows us to, to survive and thrive. You know, with or without strategies, you mentioned that Americans in some communities at least are becoming more aware and taking action. But my understanding as someone who's studied policies is that, you know, government initiatives are also necessary because they send a long-term signal to provide a stable environment, especially for investors. So what do you see the role as the government in all of this? Well, there's definitely a role. Um, it's just that uh, unlike previous grand strategies, as I said, when we uh, you know, mobilized for World War II to fight the fascists or when we the strategy of containment where we set out to outcompete the Soviet Union economically uh, as while we tried to contain it militarily, those strategies were driven by Washington. Uh, the strategy that we put forth in the book, the new grand strategy, is really more of bottomed up. In fact, we have two chapters towards the end of the book. One is called Waiting on Washington, which talks about the, the things that Washington can do to uh, enable the strategy. But the, the next chapter is called Not Waiting on Washington. And it, it's why we really don't need Washington to do what we said, what we describe in, in this plan. And I think it's important to sort of briefly describe the plan, which is to let the economy do the heavy lifting to create this new consumer demand that will lift the economy, but to align it with three very specific pools of opportunity for walkable communities, regenerative agriculture. And in the book, we lay out uh, all the different ways you do that, what that looks like, and how that happens. But what, what what's interesting about this is that it's, it, well, yes, there are absolutely things that government could do at, at the national, state, and local levels. We're not counting on government, certainly not federal government, to to drive this. There, This is really something that's paid for uh, by the private sector, by citizens, by investors looking for a, a new investment hypothesis, which is us in our retirement accounts, as well as you know pension funds and big companies and 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 others. And there there's certainly some uh, laws that would enable, uh, whether it's at the local level, uh, ordinances and building codes that would enable uh, more walkable communities and and some codes that get in the way, for example. So government has a role to play, but the, the key message here 
is that th we don't need Washington to do this. Is there any evidence so far, for example, say to uh, stock pricing, whether you know companies which are taking these initiatives are experiencing better returns? Uh, I, I think, for example, there's a field of ESG, environmental, social, and corporate governance, which tries to incorporate these type of drivers in, into investing. So this is not about corporate responsibility. This is about using markets to, to make our country more prosperous, secure, and sustainable. There's, for example, in walkable communities, just to understand the market opportunity, between now and 2030, so less than 15 years, the baby boomers and their children, the millennials, are going to converge in the housing marketplace, and they're going to be seeking smaller homes in what we call new urban communities. It's not just cities. It's, it's suburban town squares that are walkable and things like that. And if you ask consumers, um, in the, as the National Association of Realtors did, they found that 60% of home buyers want their next home purchase to have the attributes of, of what some people call smart growth. They want the right-sized homes in a broader, broad range of housing types, and they want them in walkable, service-rich, transit-oriented, mixed-use, and opportunity-dense neighborhoods. This represents about three times the demand for housing that we had after World War II when 15 million GIs came back from war. So this is a huge demand signal that the demand for, for, for walkable communities is truly of historic proportions, and it's around the country. And so, you know, the, the, the reality is that only a fraction of housing starts these days have the attributes of, of, of smart growth. So there's a large opportunity there. And in doing that, it, 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 again, we lay out how walkable communities enhance regional resilience, uh, reduce energy, address climate issues, uh, en enable food security and water security, a number of other things. That's not a government program, and this is not done for corporate social responsibility. This is done to tap big markets, and the same is true for regenerative agriculture and resource productivity, our other two big pools of demand. So, you, you know, you've been observing um, green business, and of course, you're also the chairman of the Green Business Group uh, for over 20 years now. What are you most optimistic with all the things you've seen so far? Well, gosh, there's so many different ways to answer that. I mean, what what made me optimistic, I mean, I, I've always been optimistic about the power of business to play a key role in through innovation and leadership to take on some of the big challenges like climate change. And we're seeing that now, finally, even without government leadership, where the tipping point on renewable energy purchasing, we're seeing a, the emergence of the circular economy, a number of things that are happening that are moving in the right direction. Yes, they should be happening faster, and, and that could happen uh, with some government leadership and, and some consumer pressure and other things, but it's happening nonetheless. So I'm excited about that. But it, what really made me uh, optimistic in this book is that you know, and again, you have to understand that I'm I, I'm not the basic patriotic American. I, again, I started you know came of age in the Vietnam War, and you know, really <laughs> cynical and things like that about my country's ability to do things that are leadership in the world in in a lot of ways. I mean, we're great, we're great on technology and business stuff, but our moral standing in the world, as you well know, has declined considerably. But this gave me a great deal of hope because. What I love about this plan is a number of things, but again, that it's the best of the left and right, that it's not led by Washington. But this is something that we know how to do this. We've done this before. We've used this framework called grand strategy to, to take on big challenges. And when, I, when we map this out and when I understood this vision that was created at the Pentagon and then how we 
built that out for a, as a business plan for America, it really gave me a lot of hope and, and a lot of pride in in where my country has been and where it potentially could go. Would you say that California is at the forefront of this or it doesn't really matter where geographically? Well, there's certainly a lot of leadership going on in California from technology to policy to just the, the culture of taking on uh, things like climate change and uh, and still having a thriving economy, and some of that's in a necessity. We don't have a lot of water. There's a lot of other a lot of challenges that are being faced, and it's not working perfectly. There's still a lot of inequity in the rest of the country, where there's a, the divide between rich and poor is 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 big and unsustainable. Um, but this is by no means limited to California. In fact, in the book, we tell stories of how. This uh, elements of this strategy that we lay out are already happening all over America. We spent a lot of time in the Rust Belt, in Cleveland, in Youngstown, in Detroit, uh, you know, talking about initiatives going there from urban agriculture in Detroit and how uh, one of the oldest uh, outdoor markets, Eastern Market, in the country is is reshaping Detroit as a hub for food business and in and it's in a really exciting way and how Youngstown great steel town uh, is is now uh, becoming a hub for uh, advanced, uh, excuse me, additive manufacturing, also known as 3D printing, and with, has incredible potential to transform manufacturing and and uh, let America make things again. And so, uh, and, and, and in the south and the northeast and the northwest, um, in the heartland and agriculture in North Dakota, again, we tell stories throughout. So this is not just a California thing. That's really, I think, what, again, what was exciting about this is the potential we saw all across America to take this on. So we tell of Greensburg, Kansas, which in uh, 2007 was leveled by a F5 tornado and leveled the town, basically knocked out 95%, and the other 5% uh, was un- had to be knocked down because it wasn't rebuildable. And so they had to start over, and they brought these town people together, you know, Greensburg, Kansas, in the heartland, in the middle, a very conservative state, conservative town, and, and FEMA and some architects came together, and they held meetings over the summer of 2007 to say, well, what kind of city do we want to rebuild here? What's the town look like? And what they basically created was uh, is a town that's now powered, ironically, by wind, which is what knocked it down, mm-hmm. has more lead platinum buildings per capita than any place in the world. They basically d- realized, without using the language of sustainability, that they wanted a smart, sustainable, green uh, town. And so left to their own devices, you know, it's clear that Americans want a lot of these things. It's unfortunately become polarized and politicized, so that's where we get caught up in, in a big mess. Well, I'm feeling more optimistic already. Good. I guess we're running a little bit out of time. Any last words you'd like to add about yourself or this book? No, I'm just really excited about bringing this plan uh, to the world. And, you know, when I wasn't looking to write a book, (laughs) that was the last thing I've written, uh, depending on how you count, somewhere between 20 and 25 books. But I really was inspired here. And and this is really, you know, this idea of, of bringing security to the sustainability conversation, not just around climate change, but around food, housing, water, energy, and a lot of other things, and just overall resilience was really a, an eye-opener for me. And, uh, you know, like you, I got more excited and inspired and optimistic the more I heard about it. So 
that's that's what this book meant to me, and 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 I'm really looking forward to getting it out there in the world and seeing what kind of conversation we can catalyze as a result of this book. Joel, thanks for sharing your excitement with us. Frank, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, we were just talking to Mr. Joel McCower on his new book, The New Grand Strategy. It was co-authored with Mark Michaelby and Patrick Doherty. It's available on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, and iTunes. And that's all for this week's edition of the Rock Science Show. Make sure you tune in again next week for more from the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. In the meantime, you can check us out on the web at www.rocks.net, on Facebook and Twitter. You can also email us at science at rocks.net. For Rock Science, I'm Franklin. Stay tuned here for more music. Jefferson, Missouri, you got Richmond in Virginia, South Dakota has Pierre, Harrisburg's in Pennsylvania, and the Gulf is up in Maine, and here is Providence, Rhode Island, next to Dover, Delaware, Concord, New Hampshire, just a quick jaunt, to Montpelier, which is up in Vermont, Hartford's in Connecticut, so pretty in the fall, and Kansas has Topeka, Minnesota has St. Paul. Juno's in Alaska, and there's Lincoln in Nebraska, and it's Raleigh out in North Carolina, and then there's Madison, Wisconsin, and Olympia in Washington, Phoenix, Arizona, and Lansing, Michigan. Here's Honolulu, Hawaii's a joy, Jackson, Mississippi, and Springfield, Illinois, South Carolina with Columbia down the way, and Annapolis and Maryland on Chesapeake Bay. They have wonderful clown chowder. Cheyenne is in Wyoming, and perhaps you make your home in Salt Lake City, out in Utah, where the buffalo roam. Atlanta's down in Georgia, and there's Bismarck, North Dakota, and you can live in Frankfurt in your old Kentucky home. Salem in Oregon, from there we join. Little Rock in Arkansas, Iowa's got Des Moines, Sacramento, California, Oklahoma, and its city. Charleston, West Virginia, and Nevada, Carson City. That's all the capitals. There are.